you know, another troubling thing about memoirs is lots of times um, they're written to settle scores. They're they're bitter and will name names and and tell you know it, it will tell the author's side of the controversy, but you're left to guess or suspect at what what the other angles of it are. That's a caution I have about memoirs, and uh, you know. I didn't want it to, to be a bit a bitter settling a score. I say pretty honestly some of the harm that my dad did, um, but that's not the whole picture of my dad. And uh, and also I I try to show that I have my own flaws and my own struggles. Welcome to the Habit Podcast: Conversations with Writers About Writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Arthur Bors's new memoir is Shattered. A son picks up the pieces of his father's rage. In it, he reflects on coming of age in an immigrant family scarred by violence. In the foreword, Andre Debuse writes, Instead of Arthur Bors simply setting out to show us his late father's disturbing acts of violence toward his son, the author has written a memoir rooted in an authentic desire to make sense of it all, to uncover what needs to be uncovered not as an exercise in mere exposure, but as a sincere effort to plumb the complex depths of his relationship with his flawed father. In this episode, Arthur Bors and I talk about breaking family codes of silence, living with ambiguity while still taking a clear moral position, and beach glass. Arthur Bors, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today, and I'm excited about talking about your book, your memoir, uh, Shattered, A Son Picks Up the Pieces of His Father's Rage. Um, so, thanks for being here. Uh I mean. <laughs> This is a you, you. This is a memoir of um, of mostly the the early part of your life. Uh, you, as as the subtitle suggests, uh, you are uh, in this book coming to terms with your your father's anger, um, among other things, um, and an organizing metaphor, sort of the central metaphor of this book is glass. Tell me about. Why? Why is glass? How did how did glass end up being the the organizing metaphor for this memoir? Well, there are s- several different angles to um, answering that question. Glass was just very big in my family's life. That's that's just a fact. Uh, my father's side of the family comes from a part of Holland that was nicknamed the Glass City because. Mm. There are so many greenhouses there. So if you stand on the second story of a building and you look out, sometimes you can see miles of greenhouse roofs. So there, uh, my, my family is from the Glass City, the mm-hmm. church that my grandmother went to in uh, there. My grandmother didn't come to Canada, was, you know, filled with pain, huge panes of glass in homage really to all the greenhouse farmers around. Mm. So my family is from the glass city. My mm. father uh, went into the greenhouse bu- business. He built greenhouses. He manufactured greenhouses. So he was always dealing with glass. And he also uh, sold a lot of glass. So I, mm. I moved a lot of crates of glass. Um, so so gr- glass is everywhere. And uh, my grandfather, who did not come from the Stop the glass city. Actually, he did an apprenticeship there as a young man. And uh, at one point, a hailstorm came through and knocked out all kinds of greenhouses. In the greenhouses, they were growing peaches because Holland is not normally warm enough to grow peaches. 
And he was so hungry from the boarding house where he stayed that he ate the peaches that were knocked down in the hailstorm. And unbeknownst to him, the peaches were needled with glass. And mm. so did a, a tremendous damage to his intestines that took over 20 years to repair, almost 30 years before they repaired. And then ever after that, he had scars on his um, on his belly because of all the surgeries. So wow. there was a lot of glass. And, um, and when I worked for my dad, one of my jobs was cleaning up glass because glass would break when you glaze greenhouses. So I would go around and I'd pick up glass. And that's actually one of the reasons why well, I had, a, I had a dream as I was working on this stuff. I had a dream. And I dreamed that there was a greenhouse range that got knocked out by a hailstorm that happened from time to time. Mm -hmm. And my father always felt bad for the greenhouse farmers, but it was good for his business because he yeah. got to sell supplies and repair greenhouses. So there's a, there's a mixedness there. I know you're interested in ambiguity. Yeah. And uh, in the dream, um, all this glass is broken all over the all over the ground, there's a whole acre of broken glass. And I get a bucket and I start to pick up the broken glass. Uh, that was my first job when I was 11, picking up broken glass. Yeah. And in the dream, my father says, that's okay, son. You don't need to do that anymore. It was oh. a kind of a liberating thing because my dad usually told me I need to work harder and work more. Yeah. So that was an interesting dream. And then I'd also, I started to realize Glass has been throughout my life. In fact, my first memory of my father was an act of violence where he threw a houseplant at my mother. I was three or four at the time. He threw a houseplant at her and it, it sailed through the picture window. That's the, my first memory of my dad uh, it was an act of violence, an act of yeah. broken glass. So there's all kinds of glass stories uh, throughout. It's kind of a natural organizing metaphor in some ways. But I think one of the reasons why it's especially important is because glass itself is mixed. Mm. Uh, we don't know whether it's a solid or a liquid. People mm. debate that. Uh, it has tremendous uses. Just try to imagine our lives today without glass. It's impossible to imagine yeah. because there's so many conveniences, so much technology. But it's also hazardous. When it breaks, it's mm. hazardous. Um, glass can be very, very strong. It can also be very, very fragile. And so there's this mixedness throughout and then I, you know, I love the fact that glass is made up of um, uh, sand, uh, sand and ashes, actually. And then I, I think about as a, an Anglican priest, I think about how um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and reminding people that they're ashes on Ash, Ash Wednesday. So I feel like there's a lot of resonances with the glass. Yeah. At what point did you realize that you were going to write about? Glass, right? I mean, did, did you, were you, did you decide I'm going to write a memoir? And as you were casting about for, for how to organize this thing, glass became a, a thing. How did that, how did that even work? So I, it took me a long, this, this, it took me a long time to figure out how I wanted to focus this book. At some point, I decided that I was going to try to write a memoir about my childhood. I, I, have grown increasingly to love creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to write in that genre. I've written a lot of pastoral theology books yeah. and I'm really glad they have done them, but I'm trying to change the style of writing. And I thought, I thought I would do that with my childhood. And uh, as I started to work on it, I thought, well, there are three things about my childhood. One is I was the such a son of Dutch immigrants. Mm 
-hmm. So English is my second language. I couldn't even pronounce the Canadian, the English name that my parents gave me. They couldn't pronounce it either. Yeah. I had to learn in kindergarten. So I grew up thinking I was in Canadian, that I, but I was Dutch. And then when I eventually went to Holland, I realized, no, I'm not Dutch either. So I had this kind of <laughs> in-between state. Wow. And uh, in a glass. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I have friends who were missionary kids, you know, and they talk about being third culture kids. Yeah. And I feel like that was my experience. So so that was one thing I wanted to talk about. Um, I also had some very vivid uh, religious experiences, mystical experiences as a child that really informed and shaped me and really helped me through some uh, troubling times. And I thought uh, I would try my hand at trying to write about them. And then the third was uh, I knew I needed to think about my father, who uh, was an alcoholic. He had PTSD. He had he had a terrific uh, he had an awful temper and uh, mm -hmm. as I mentioned the first thing I remember about him was an act of violence and uh, I often felt in danger from him so I thought I, I would write about that and you know and as you know Jonathan because you're a writer too when you do a long writing project it's it's a lot like having a lump of clay on a potter's wheel and um, you're molding it and you're shaping it and it doesn't work and you put it up back together and you mold and yeah. shape it some more and you learn some things, but you lump it again and you do it again. You keep twirling and twirling. And, and as I was twirling this story, I eventually realized this is primarily a story about my relationship with my dad. That, that's the focus. So, you know, I'm still going to, I still talk about the religious experiences. I talk about being Dutch. That's all part of it. Right. But the central thing really is my relationship with my dad and working through that process. And uh, even, even then, it took a while for me to realize that glass was such a powerful metaphor in this. Yeah. And, but once I realized it, it was like, oh, gosh, that's so obvious. It's, yeah. it's there. It's everywhere. Um, it serves so many purposes. Yeah. Um you you mentioned it at one point in this book that you were in your 60s before it really occurred to you how shocking you know some of these memories are right the the right. The, the idea of a flower pot sailing across the the room and through a, a plate glass window um until you started telling that story to other people. And, you, and I, I guess you, as you saw shock register on their face, right, right. that's when you realize just how shocking this is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there are several things to say about it. And one is that uh, violent fathers were kind of a norm when I was growing up. There were a lot of fathers that were angry and I realized in retrospect, a lot of them had PTSD and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of fathers, I would say their, their behavior was worse than my father's. So I didn't think a lot about it. And um, I think also that you get, you know, you go through life and you have to hold some things down for a while. Um, you can't pay, you can't afford to pay attention to them, you know? So uh, yeah. you get your education, you get work, you get married, you raise a family. And mm -hmm. so you sort of put off stuff or put down stuff, not, not consciously, but you do. And one of the signs for me was I was in a, in a, a class with a nun in university. I was around 20 and she gave us a journaling assignment and she asked us to write 10 major stepping stones in our life. I was 20. I could hardly think of anything. Yeah. Uh, one of them that I mentioned was uh, a recent day where I'd lost a fountain pen and I was really upset. Um, so that, that was how profound that got, but it never occurred <laughs> to me, never occurred to me 
that what my father did uh, had formed me in some deep ways. And then when I was around 60, it just it felt to me like a number of things were catching up with me. So I'd struggle, yeah. I've struggled with depression all my life. Mm. Uh, I have mood swings. I get tr- triggered and overwhelmed emotionally. And uh, I started to realize, oh, this, this is connected to my, it's connected to my father and there's stuff that I need to work through uh, regarding my father. So yeah, it came, it pretty, came pretty late in life. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this idea that you, that you saw this kind of uh, fear and fear on your part, anger on your father's part um, as, as just the norm. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the idea when you say that this wasn't even the worst, you know, you make a list at at some point of all the all the worst fathers in your neighborhood than your father. And it was a long list. It was a long list, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, do does that somehow the fact that you can list worst fathers? Um, how does that how does that change the way you or did 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 it delay your process of processing or dealing with uh, the trauma in your own life? Was that a way of protecting yourself from the trauma that you experienced? Well, I it's hard it's hard to know whether I did that consciously or not, but I do think that it is a way that I delayed because I'm like. Well, my dad's not so bad. He drives me yeah. around to places sometimes, and uh, he 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 beat me only twice. I, you know, I'll say you know I'll say that they were bad beatings, but it, it only happened twice. Uh, mind you, what I realized in retrospect is that I always lived in fear. I was always worried about triggering him. I, I right. it was be unpredictable. So, but I think you know the other thing that is very important is that I'm trying to understand my dad compassionately and i think i've done that in the book mm-hmm. yeah the past year over the decades you know i had to learn how to understand compassionately people i just didn't get um yeah you know, what made them, what made them tick and um as i've looked at trauma one bit of counsel that i've heard that i find really helpful is that you don't ask people what's wrong with you or what's the matter with you uh, you need to ask them what happened to you. And that's a very good pastoral question. And um, so I also think about that in terms of my father. What What's happened to you? He lived through two wars. His father was far more violent than mine. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do think he dialed down the violence. The, his violence against me was not anywhere compared to the violence of his father against him. So I think there are ways of looking uh insightfully and realistically but also compassionately and and pastorally and i suspect that would be the case for all those other fathers too but you know i don't, I don't have the i don't have the information sure about that and it's yeah. probably not my job anyway sure did i, did I answer your question <laughs> i think so it's okay. I, I love that insight of asking what happened to you yeah rather than the you I'm not, you know, instead of asking, interpret, just tell me what happened. I think that's, a, you know, when it comes to memoir, I think that question of what happened, you know, that's a 
that's where you start, not with my interpretation. Yeah. You know, not I'm going to explain necessarily. I mean, you know, that, that I think that will all, probably always end up being a part of most memoir. Sure. Sure. But the first question is what happened? Um, yeah. Understanding, I realize that there's interpretation involved, you know, in telling what happened. Of course. Um, one of the, the striking things about the um, the acts of violence that you describe in this book is this agreement that nobody who's involved is going to talk about it or certainly mm-hmm. not going to talk. I mean, I guess unless to make it as, as sort of a recurring family joke, right? You you say that I, I was really surprised to see that the the throwing the geranium through the plate glass window was just a family story that we, you know, that, that got shared in the Boers family. Not, you know, there was never any apology. There was never any shame, apparently. Um, it was just so we didn't, you know, y'all either didn't talk about these things or you talked about them as if they were uh, just a, a another funny story. That's um, right. And so in writing this book, you are breaking some family rules. Right. Um, how did that feel? Well, feels risky. Yeah. Um, and I've been slowly showing this book to various relatives to see what their yeah. re- response or reactions would be. And uh, I'm actually going to go to a Boers family reunion in Holland in September. Okay. And I'll be introducing the book there. Uh, we had a big family reunion a few years ago and in Holland, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about some of these anger and alcohol and abuse, but, it, you know, people were not interested in talking about <laughs> I guess family reunion is not the setting for it, yeah. uh, but it'll be pressed home a little bit more because I'll, I'll be bringing the book to the reunion and they've given me time, time to talk about it. So it's hard to talk about, um, I'm certainly have to cross a threshold, a high threshold, but I do feel like um, I had to do it. I had I had to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you you have shown it to family members already. I have, yeah, yeah. How's that gone? Mm-hmm. Uh, went it went pretty. It's gone pretty well so far. Um, I showed an early draft to one of my relatives. Uh, because um, she was imp- she was clearly implicated in a story, and she asked me just to take it out, and mm-hmm. I you know I did that um, yeah. because it was her story, it wasn't my story, yeah. um, and uh, so that was the only change that I made in direct response. Um, and uh, you know, some family members say, "Well, we hope you say some good things about us." Just fair enough. I do say some good things about my relatives. Sure. Yeah, uh, I say some good things about my dad too. I love my dad. Yeah. Um, and, uh, some of my relatives comment that I have quite a memory for details, which is true. And actually I was just reading recently PTSD in some ways you could say PTSD is a disorder of the memory. That is your memories are too strong. Uh. And so maybe my memory is too good. I don't know. Um, and then, uh, I also have family members who say, well, you're, you're sensitive. You take things more sensitively than I would. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, I have a relative. I tell the story in the book. He fell, cut his jeans and his knees, and uh, his mother chewed him out because 
knees repair themselves, but jeans don't. And he just thinks that's a funny story. He laughs about it. <laughs> and when I hear it, it makes me feel sad. Yeah. I wouldn't be told that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I am, I am more sensitive. What can I say? It's true. Um, I probably wouldn't be a pastor if I wasn't sensitive. So, you know, it has yeah. gifts and liabilities. Right. I know I, this, this is something that, that uh, my friend Helena Sorensen talks about is the idea that on the one hand, of course, to be a writer, you have to be thick skin. You have to be able to receive criticism, whatever. But it's the thin skin is also what makes it possible for you to to do this work, that that right. sensitivity uh, without it. Well, without it, it all ends up being sad stories told for laughs. Right. It's, you know, the anecdotes, it, it, things turn into anecdotes um, so easily in ways that, that sometimes are, instead of being revealing, they are, they are concealing. Right. And I think yeah. that's something that, that, that seems to be a, a theme of, of some of the, the ways, um, just the story you told about, about the, uh, your, your cousin. Um, yes, that's a, that's a sad, a sad story that is, that gets told for laughs and the geranium through the, through the plate glass window is a, is a very sad story that apparently got told for laughs around around your. Uh, yeah, can I just throw one other thing here that I think yeah. is important, and that is when I think about my grandparents and my parents and all my relatives, you know, they had really hard lives. Uh, yeah. There was a depression in the Netherlands. Uh, I, I told you about my grandfather. This was b- before the depression. You know, he 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 worked. He was kind of starving in his mm-hmm. apprenticeship. People lived through the depression. Then they lived through the occupation of the Netherlands from the Nazis. Yeah. My dad lived the last year of his life. He had to hide in an attic because uh, he was vulnerable to being seized by the Nazis for slave labor. And uh, and then he volunteered for a brutal war in Indonesia. And then they immigrated. They, they yeah. bring one crate, one crate of goods and $50. And they have to struggle to survive. And uh, so, you know, what, one of the things that helps me look compassionately is to say these folks, they were about the business of survival. Yes. All their energy was going to survival. Yeah. And they didn't have the luxury of introspection that I have, mm-hmm. uh, taking yeah. time and really making things through. They had to get things done just to yeah. eat, just to survive. Yeah, that's a that's a great reminder, right? I mean, and if if you need to tell some of these sad stories as amusing anecdotes to get through, okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about uh, ambiguity, uh, because, I, you know, it's obvious in this memoir that you feel a lot of different things about. I mean, th- there's there's not um, there's not a lot of uh, certainty about how you feel or feel that you ought to feel about about these things, right? I mean, you, you, as you say, you, there are things that you very much admire about your father that you love and you love your father. Um, and, and yet you have other feelings too, right. And that you, um, that you can't simplify into one thing or the other. Right. Right. It's a, your, your story is a, is a Dutch door, right? That's both open and closed at the same time. A Dutch yeah. door, I guess that's what Mr. Ed had in, in the Mr. Ed show. Is that, is that a Dutch yeah. door? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, I think on Lassie, I think Lassie had, I think the Lassie, had, there was a Dutch door in Lassie. <laughs> Dutch doors were big in TV shows when I was a kid for some reason. Oh, man, I I uh, uh, wanted one of those doors so badly in any. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so ambiguity, um, I mean, it's the ambiguity that, that um, as you said, maybe your, many of your family members didn't have the luxury of being introspective, of being reflective. They just needed to, to charge ahead and, and get things done. You did have um, a little more uh, room to, to feel ambiguous, you know, have ambiguous feelings about things. Um, and that is a, a, I think that's such an important tool for a writer, the ability to, to live in ambiguity and not go too quickly to, um, a, a a simple explanation or a simple or a straightforward. I don't know. You know what? I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to even finish that sentence. I'm going to let you talk. Uh, <laughs> ambiguity. So yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm 66 now, and uh, so I'm right on schedule for seeing life in um, all kinds of shades of gray rather than <laughs> black and white. You know, I was yeah. quite a social justice warrior when I first became a pastor and uh, you know I'm, I still support uh, social justice but I look at it and work at it in very different ways than I did 40 years ago plus I as a pastor especially really learned to listen carefully to and be respectful of people that I deeply disagreed with mm-hmm. and uh, still trust that God is at work in their life and still trust that we all belong around the table together so mm-hmm. you know uh, life is a training i think uh, yeah well i would say life trains us in 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 ambiguity um but also trains us not to be afraid of ambiguity so mm-hmm. here in canada we like to quote um leonard cohen and he has this line there is a crack a crack and everything that's how the light gets in yeah and uh, you know in many in many respects that applies well to the book um You'll, you, on the cover of the book, they're using kintsugi, the mm-hmm. Japanese pottery that's broken and then um, uh, mended with precious metals. And there's a certain kind of beauty to it. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I think life is like that, too, that uh, there are cracks, there are there's brokenness, uh, there is mending, but there's also there's also beauty there. And uh, so it's looking for the beauty in the ambiguity rather than in the in the clean cut. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, you, you, you are. And the, it's, it's tempting to think that one's job as a writer is to provide, you know, clarity explanation. There's a, there's a kind of answer that is uh, simplifying, you know, Um, and I, I do think there are plenty of writers and plenty of readers who say, this is a very complex world. I need to have things simplified sure. for me. Just tell me what's true. Just tell me what's right. right. Um, and I, maybe I'm not going to say true. I'm going to say what's correct. Okay. <laughs> and um, and uh, that's not really what you're offering here in this book. Is a simple. You're not offering a simplification. Um, you're offering some ambiguity that that just feels like life feels. And, and here's a way um, to, in a, in a world that is ambiguous, um, 
here's the story of the way one person has come to terms with that ambiguity, not by solving it, not by simplifying it. Um, and I think that's very valuable that you've done here. Well, well, thanks. I, I do think, you know, you'll come away from the book uh, unhappy about violence and unhappy about parental violence. And um, mm-hmm. um, you'll feel a, feel a call to paying attention to anger and, 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 and watching how anger manifests itself. So there's ambiguity, but doesn't mean there aren't rights and wrongs. Uh-huh. doesn't mean there's no morality in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is. But it's, um, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> um, it's you know, I, you know, as a pastor, I'd have these amazing characters in my congregation that sometimes would drive me crazy on the one hand. And on the other hand, they were just so generous and so faithful mm-hmm. at, the, at the same time. Yeah. And uh, so, so life just doesn't break down into these nice and neat uh, categories that I thought they would when I was a 16-year-old teenager. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I was uh one thing I noticed in your um in your account of your early life is how many different ways you managed to be self-righteous, right? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm self-righteous at, as a uh you know, very strict Calvinist and now I'm going to be self-righteous in this other regard and and you know and until you let go of the self-righteousness, it's just going to find other you know it's just going to find other ways to express itself. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but I appreciate that, that clarity that you offer that um, uh, to be willing to deal with ambiguity is, is not to um, say, you know, you can still have a moral position and, and you do have yes. a, a clear moral position in this, in this book, which is not quite the same thing as having a moral to the story. Correct. Correct. Um, and um or if there's a more yeah never mind <laughs> Try to well, there's also i you know i like to think i know that there are hard realities that i discuss in the book but i also you know i like to think that the book is hopeful that yeah. there is there is life beyond this there are good things that happen uh beyond this and and i tell some of those stories to indicate mm-hmm. that i've i've experienced that yeah so well, it's not the you know, so when I preach, like when I preach, uh, you know, when, and when I teach seminary students, I tell them, you know, you're not allowed just in your sermon, you should not be airing unresolved issues for yourself. So, mm-hmm. example, you should not from the pulpit or as a counselor say, I'm struggling with depression right now. Because that's a violation of your responsibility. When you're in the office of being a counselor, therapist, pastor, uh, when you're on duty, you're taking care of other people. That's the way it is. That's your responsibility. Mm -hmm. And and so when you say, if you say, I'm having depression right now, then you're inviting people to take care of of you. And that's inappropriate. Um, You need to have, you need to be taken care of, but that should be done in another setting. It is okay. It can be okay. It's not always okay, but you, you need to be careful. But it can be okay to say, uh, I have struggled with depression or I have been depressed because that can give people hope because they realize, oh, even my pastor, whom I respect and look up to, even my pastor has struggled with depression and maybe there's hope beyond the depression. Hmm. And I guess um, 
that's part of how I how I see this book is that it's not um, probably during the writing of it I was working out stuff that I hadn't yeah. quite worked out yet, but yeah. I'm in a new place having gone through all this processing over the last number of years hmm. including writing and therapy and spiritual direction and analyzing dreams and studying PTSD you know there's been all kinds of parts to that yeah um, well the, some of that language maybe um, is helpful in knowing the difference between um, a kind of self-indulgent memoir. I mean, mm-hmm. before we started recording, I, I was saying, you know, I, I'm always a little nervous about the possibility in in, in memoir of of, uh, of it being self-indulgent. Um, you know, a, a friend of mine uh, described, you know, her way of talking about self-indulgence in in writing is. Um, saying to the reader, here, you read this. You, you, let, let me work out. You sit here and read this while I work out my, <laughs> my yeah. issues. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and so, but that, that idea of the, the, the phrase that you use that I, that I find helpful, I may have to borrow, is not putting yourself in a position where you're asking your reader to, to take care of you. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm now, you know, instead of giving you something, I'm going to ask something of you, which I guess that's different for a writer than it is for, say, a pastor or a therapist, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so. Oh, the, the, you know, another troubling thing about memoirs is lots of times um, they're written to settle scores. Yeah. They're, they're bitter, bitter and yeah. will name names and and tell you know it, it will tell the author's side of the controversy, mm-hmm. but you're left to guess or suspect at what what the other angles of it are. Yeah, so that's a caution I have about memoirs, and uh, you know I didn't want it to to be a bit a bitter settling a score. I say pretty honestly some of the harm that my dad did, um, but that's not the whole picture of my dad and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I I try to show that I have my own flaws, and my own struggles. Sure, so. sure. Well, you you've already talked about the idea of that you've that you've uh, though you're processing as you were writing, you're giving the reader something a little more finished than your than your own processing. And an image that you use that I would love to spend some time talking about is the image of beach glass, right? Because yeah. Of, of all the kinds of glass we you talk about in this book, um, it's often dangerous. It's often, uh, you know, I mean, you, you've got scars on your hands from yep. being in the glass business. <laughs> you know? right. And you said, right. you talk about how, how many scars your dad had from, from yeah. messing with glass. Um, and then there's uh, beach glass, which is made out of the same stuff as, I mean, it, it is just the same glass that, that, um, that cuts us. Uh, a lot of our listeners may not know about beach glass. So tell me about, about beach glass. Okay. So yeah, glad you do that. When, when I, uh, when I was 12, we lived near a beach actually. And I used to go there every day and swim with my friends, except on Sunday because we were Calvinists and we weren't allowed to swim on Sunday. But um, the last day that I was at that beach, we were going to move the following year. I didn't know that. So the last day, we were at the beach. I actually had an accident with glass, with a broken bottle. I didn't know it was broken. 
And uh, it's a big, long story, but I ended up slicing this thumb open quite badly. And I, I had to be taken to emergency for stitches. So, you know, there's another glass story, dangerous yeah. glass story yeah. in my life. And uh, so a few years ago, I went back to that beach where I had cut my thumb. And actually, I don't think I'd been back to that beach for 50 years, uh, truth be told, for half a century. And I got fascinated with the beach glass, which there's there's less beach glass than there used to be. Um, But beach glass is glass that ends up in the water one way or another. And... uh, it gets tumbled around by the currents and the waves and uh, it gets dragged through the sand yeah. and uh, eventually it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces and all the sharp edges are worn off and the color might change a little bit, gets mm-hmm. a little bit of a little bit foggy. Um, yeah. And I've, I've always been fascinated by beach glass. I always pick it up. I, I like, I like beach glass. And, uh, but then when I was visiting this beach, Jones beach, it's called, um, I saw this beach glass and I saw green uh, beach glass in the bottle that cut me was green. And I thought mm-hmm. this could actually be from the very bottle that cut me because the process of turning broken glass into beach glass can take between 10 and 50 years. Yeah. So, you know, in my imagination, I thought, well, this could actually be the very, very glass. Who knows? But the point, the point really is that um, that's a traumatic process for the glass to be rolled around by currents and waves and through the dirt and in the sand, have its edges worn off. It's a traumatic process, but at, by the end, there's a thing of great beauty. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people like beach glass. They collect it, they put it in bowls, they put it in their windowsills, they make jewelry out of it. And so it's another example of how through very traumatic and terrible, ambiguous circumstances, uh, great, um, great beauty can emerge. And uh, for me, it was especially great because I was talking about glass throughout the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that um, also that I was I was trying to find the um, the um, uh, actual passage in the book where you you uh, talk about the idea that there's that movement is random. (laughs) The movement that that tumbles the the dangerous glass, the the sharp glass. into something beautiful and and uh, not quite so dangerous um, yeah. is there's a there's a randomness to it and unpredictability in that yeah. tumbling, um, yeah. and it reminds me of the idea of uh, you know thrownness the idea that, that, that here we are kind of thrown into the world we find ourselves in the situation we find ourselves in and and yeah. um, and then we um, we make a life mm-hmm. from that. Uh, we, right. we didn't decide which family to be born in right. or, or what our name was going to be, or yeah. we just find ourselves here. Um, I, used to tell, I used to tell my seminary students that a lot of ministry is improvisation. Yeah. And the young ambitious ones didn't get that. They just thought they're going to go out and plant the churches that they wanted, churches in their own mm-hmm. image. And uh, I said, no, you're, you're going to be faced with circumstances that are not of your choosing. It's not it's not the perfect congregation. This is not the group that you uh, would have chosen. And and you know what? That's a good thing because let, let me tell you, I knew what I wanted when I was 25 and I was absolutely right. And then when I was 35, I knew what I wanted and I was absolutely right. But it was different than when I was 25 and then 45 and 55 and 65. You know, we keep changing. We keep yeah. seeing the situation differently. 
So why do we want to impose our image on the exact circumstances that we face right now? Yeah, love it. You're quoting somebody when you say entering into the world of trauma is like looking into a fractured looking glass. Do you remember who you're right. quoting there? Or was yeah, that? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a book about uh, trauma. Um, I can look it up right now. It might take me a few minutes. That, or doesn't what's matter. That? Yeah. No. Okay. I, I was just thinking I'm about. Just, I just stand by it. I opened this book on trauma, and then we're talking about fractured glass, and I'm like, oh, oh my goodness, that's wow. that is. By then I knew I was working with that me- metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just you know sort of thinking about how this memoir, this book, starts yeah. with that fractured looking glass and ends up with something like beach glass, right? I mean the. the, the right. The the years that you cover in this um, in this book um, tumble that that uh, shattered looking glass, that fractured looking glass into into something beautiful. Um, yeah, hope so. <laughs> yes, it's such a such a great image for for the way memoir can work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Thank you. Uh, okay, I. I had uh, meant to warn you about this question and forgot, but so I almost okay. want to spring it on you. Uh, this is my typical last question. That is, who are the writers who make you want to write? Oh, well, I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> I love uh, Scott Russell Sanders, Rebecca Solnit, uh, Barry Lopez, Andre Dubuse, hmm. uh, Frederick Buechner. Um, Andre Debuse, by the way, wrote a lovely introduction to this book. Yeah, it was. uh, It brings tears to my eyes when I when I read it. Um, He's very generous with me, and he worked with me uh, quite closely at one point uh, during the manuscript. And he he really loved it. And he said, "Arthur, I'll do anything to help you get this book out in the world." And other things he read that uh, he wrote that forward and i could tell you he read the book carefully three or four times mm. uh, when he was giving me feedback so he worked really hard he's an amazing amazing teacher and, and a very very generous person yeah. the forward i mean you can tell from the forward that he had read it very carefully so yeah yeah um and it's a book that rewards careful reading so um i uh i love it i i, I love the work you've you've done here and uh uh I loved your living in a focus book. It's a very different kind of book. And, uh, and I love this one too. So, um, so thanks for this work you're doing. And uh, um, I hope you I hope many people read this and benefit from it like I did. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to talk with you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.